You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Joshua. Somebody turn in your Bible to Joshua. Chapter 5, verses 9 through 12. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased that day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When the reproach of Israel was removed, they stopped eating manna and ate fruit. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. From now on, I'm going to say that. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. That sort of means in like a judgy sort of way. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, yes, the disciples did, and they judged him harshly, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a... The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. And would you all please stand for the reading of the gospel and one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible as Julian comes to read the story of the prodigal son. A reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, and 11 through 32. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out, to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. 
and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when, the son, but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The word of the Lord. You may be seated this morning. Yes. It is one of the greatest pieces of preaching ever when Jesus told that story. Earlier in the worship service, a word went forth that said that God is wanting to put new wine into new wineskins. And one of the things that I wrote down when that word was given was that there are wineskins. There, there's a mentality that we carry that can't fully accept how much God loves us because it's scandalous. And there are ways in which, and I've experienced this sharing with people, that when you really talk to people about unconditional love, when you really talk to people about a God who doesn't hold condition over his children, but will go to the ends of the earth and then even to hell to bring them back. There's a fear that sweeps over us because of our insecurities that says, how could that possibly be? There has to be punishment. And it bursts wineskins of legalism to smithereens. And sometimes God holds new wine because he needs us to develop wineskins that, that we would think that new wineskins needs to be new skin to handle the harshness of God. But we have skin that can handle the harshness of God. We need new wineskins that can handle all of his love. Because all of his love makes us vulnerable. It shows everything that we could ever possibly do, and it forgives all of it, all of the time. And that is terrifying for us. In those insecurities, in various ways in all of our lives, at some point we have been taught that the best way to live is rooted in requirement. 
I'm required to serve my family. I'm required to love my wife. I'm required to try and be a good dad. I'm required to clap my hands on Sunday. I'm required to tithe 10% on what I make. I'm required to dot, dot, dot. We've been taught to live based on right and wrong requirement and quota. And so we live so much of our life trying to live up to those requirements, scared to death that if we don't, there might be a lapse in God's protection. I might not look like who I see in the mirror if I can't look at that reflection and say, you've met the quota. And that's why it says in Joshua that he has removed the reproach of Egypt. What is the reproach of Egypt? The reproach of Egypt is quota and requirement. We're making this many pyramids, so you need to make brick without straw, and you need to meet all of the requirements. And for 400 years, a people learned to live and interpret life through, did I hit my quota? Did I meet requirements? And honestly, Salem, starting with me, and I hope that this disarms you, I live so much of my life saying, did I add up to a requirement? Am I being good enough? Is my life worthy enough? Am I worth listening to? I made myself laugh before when I said, God, in 50 years, when somebody else is the pastor here, I'm like, man, you overshot that. 50 years. Lucky if we're here on Easter. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm not moving. We live so often. I'm sorry, you guys told me to try to stay here more. My bad. Where are we? We live so often in this idea of requirement requirement can sometimes hold you in place until you mature to move out of that. Requirement can sometimes be a good tutor to teach you how to live life inside the edges. Requirement can sometimes help us when we're in our highest levels of immaturity know where the boundary lines are. But God has more for us than just requirement. He has fruitfulness for us. He doesn't want us just, we know this old adage, he doesn't want us just surviving. He wants us thriving. He wants us fruitful. He wants us to produce. He wants in us to be the seed that is produced after its own kind. He wants more for us than to just be satisfied with manna. Manna is good when you're stuck in a tutor kind of time. When you're in the wilderness trying to learn to live out of slavery into a life of freedom, which you need a new wineskin to do. I have noticed, and I'm going to say this, here's our relationship, okay? This is my relationship. I've noticed when I preach sermons about how we need to, I guess we would call them the, you really smacked us today kind of sermons. When I preach those, you're so much louder and more enthusiastic than when I tell you that God loves you. Because we are used to getting beat. Because we beat ourselves all of the time for not meeting requirements. And when you hear it, it's comforting. Get right or get left. When you hear that stuff, it is comforting. But that's not how Jesus wants to teach you forever. You may need that for a season. I may need that for a season. I may need that for a lot of seasons. My wife is here. I might need that for a lot of seasons. But there's a point when God wants more for us than just get back away from the boundaries. He wants us to live a life of fruitfulness. 
where we don't always have to hear how bad we are. Where a desire in us is changing and we're moving into the unmerited, unconditional, boundaryless love of God. But it's scary to grow up. It's scary to move out. The world is harsh. We're harsh. I'm harsh. But the manna has to cease for the fruit to be eaten. And some of us are so satisfied after 30, 40 years with a Christian life of just manna. Just, I just want to know that I'm getting it right. And if I'm getting it right, then I'm good. There's more for you than that. There's life for you. See, Jesus told us about two trees. The tree of the knowledge of good and, and the tree of... We have to walk away from just wanting to be right so that we can walk into life. Wanting to be right and wanting to prove other people wrong, mostly rooted in my own security, insecurities, we have to move away from that. We have to fast that. We have to starve from that. We have to be impoverished with that so that we can eat the tree of life, which is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's manna. The tree of life is Jesus. Jesus himself even said, your fathers ate that bread, but they died. The bread that I'm offering you is fruitfulness. It's more than just manna. It will teach you to live in the promised land and then beyond. Have you ever met someone who just always wants to be right? Have you met me? Have you met me? Please, let's just do one thing. Everybody, it's not Halloween. Take the costumes off today. Let's be honest. Being right secures us. Even if the approach to being right kills a relationship, we at least stand over the carcass of that relationship saying, at least they knew I was right. Everything is destroyed and burning down behind me, but at least they knew I was right. And now I, and maybe more juicy than that, now I know that they know that I was right. Yeah, but the relationship's irreparably damaged. They know I was right. The desire to be right is equally the desire to prove other people wrong. And why do we want to prove other people wrong? Because we are mortified at what is wrong in us. And the more I can make you realize how wrong you are, the less you or me need to see me. And we pride ourselves. I had somebody say to me recently, Pastor, I got to tell you something. And just so you know, I'm one of those people who speaks their mind. You know what's coming next? A criticism. Have you ever heard somebody start with, listen, you're going to hate me, but I'm not one of those people who's quiet. I always speak my mind. Why is it that every time somebody speaks their mind, it's always a critique? Your mind isn't right. (laughs) Stop speaking it so much. Why is it when somebody, if somebody ever called you and said, hey, Paul, you know, I, I, I'm, listen, I'm going to speak my mind. You're one of the greatest men I've ever met in my life, and I hope my son Theo grows up to be like you. Why, why is that never speaking our mind? Why is it always a critique? Because our mind is messed up. You can go home now. Thank you. That was good. We, we did a good job. We had a good one today. And then here's Jesus. 
he didn't count their trespasses against them. Instead, he moved toward reconciliation. Pause. He didn't count their trespasses against them so that he could reconcile them. We say, when they admit their trespasses, and I finally shove their face in it long enough for them to know they were wrong, then they'll be reconciled. No! He didn't count the trespasses so that he could reconcile them. What if reconciliation is letting go of being right or wrong and entering into life, and in that life, people will realize where they're wrong? But it's birthed out of insecurity, sheer, morbid insecurity over our own life that we have this need to be right and others to be wrong. What does the desire to be right mean? The desire to be right means, first, truth over trust. And this is a negative thing. We want, and people say, and, and, and that when we say this, we don't know what we're saying. You know what? I want to pursue the truth, no matter what it costs me. And we approach truth over trust. Why is this dangerous? One simple reason is not any one of us even holds 5% of the truth. And the assumption that on our own we know it is going to cause us to have an inflated self-ego and have suspicion over other people. Because the truth is not a political party. The truth is not a Bible verse or a collection of them or all of them. The truth is flesh and blood Jesus Christ of Nazareth who lived, died, and rose again on Easter Sunday. That's what the truth is. The truth is not a lifestyle. The truth is not the way a home should be run. The truth is not what do you believe about the Trinity. Those things, as Dr. Green would say, have truthiness in them, but they're only true insofar as they lead you and catapult you and drown you into the person of Jesus Christ. The truth is a person, not a fact, not an argument, not a punchline, a person. Jesus even said to his own People, you search the scriptures thinking that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that point to the truth, which is me, is what he said. But we think truth, and so we, because we pursue truth on our own, we end up suspicious and we can't trust. But God will never let you on your own ever derive that truth because you wouldn't need anyone else in this room if you did. And so many of us, including me in certain areas, live suspicious because we're trying to have a monopoly on truth. Truth is what I learned once that I really liked, and now forever that's what truth is. No. When we go to heaven and we are in our glorified bodies, we will still be learning. What will make it perfect is that we won't care that we need to anymore. What makes learning bad now is that we don't want to. 
in our ego, I want to get to the place where I no longer have to learn. God, that's, never, that's hell. Heaven is an infinite God who has infinite things to say and a glorified body in me that's going to infinitely be learning from him forever. And heaven is, I will finally submit to being a student and not care anymore. It'll be glory. Desire to be right is content over conversation. Content over conversation. I have a friend, a good friend of mine. He's an atheist, and he asked me a question this week, and he said, you know, he said, I know, I know a lot of Christians, and I'm like, I'm sorry. And he said, why is it that there's so much room in my life for them, but there's hardly any room in their life for me? I was like, um, you see, what happened was, I, uh, if you carry the two um, with the, I don't know. I'm sorry for that. How is it that he has more Christ in him and doesn't even believe in Jesus? Is that uncomfortable? How does somebody who doesn't serve the Lord have more room in their life for people with varying opinions than him and we have so little room for people with different lifestyles than us? I was ordained in an organization called the Communion for Evangelical and Episcopal Churches and one of our archbishops uh, Bishop Mike Owen was invited to sort of like an ecumenical conference where there was going to be priests from Eastern Orthodoxy and Western Orthodoxy, blah, blah, blah. He sort of doesn't know where to sit because in convergence, we are neither East nor West. We're sort of like, what is the best that all of you have to offer? Let's just do that. And a priest came up to him and said, so is your Eucharist valid? And he's like, I don't even know what you're talking about, to be perfectly honest with you. And he said, how do, you, how do you know that you're doing what Jesus wants you to do? And he said, you see those priests over there? They don't think the way that you guys do Eucharist is valid. And you see those priests over there? They don't think the way that you guys do Eucharist is valid. For me, if you love Jesus, I think the way all of you do Eucharist is valid. Who's more Christ-like? And here's the thing. The priest got mad at him because stories don't end happily all the time because some people just can't let go of the fact that they might be wrong. And what Bishop Mike was after wasn't, what is the technicality here that is right? What is the technicality there that is right? He's like, listen, we're just coming messy to a table. And if that ain't right, nothing anybody does in this room is. We're just trying to come to, we're children trying to get back to a father who needs to run halfway out to meet us anyway because we can't make it, even if we want it to. And that's valid, right? It's not about being right or wrong. It's about something greater. It's about fruitfulness. And sometimes we end a conversation because the content of somebody's life is repulsive to us. Repulsive to us. I have listened to Christians say, I just can't. Something in my stomach turns when I see those people. Something in your stomach has a demon and not Jesus then. Right? We cannot be this way. If it's about right or wrong, we're eating from the wrong tree. We're hiding behind trees. We need to come out from hiding. And then finally, and this doesn't need too much explanation, being right sees agreement over acceptance. If you're married, would you please stand?
you're married, would you please stand? Stand to your feet. And don't do the whole, I'm married to Jesus. Don't. That's not it right now. All right, now, if you've ever once thought that the person you're married to is wrong about something, keep standing. If you've ever had an argument that ended in, we're just going to have to agree to disagree, just keep standing. If you've ever known in your gut that that person is wrong about something and it hasn't fully gotten right, you're just going to walk away disagreeing, just keep standing. Look around the room. Agreement does not hold a marriage together. If it did, you'd all be sitting. What holds a marriage together is how we learn to disagree well. That's what holds it together. Now you may be seated. John, sit down. Sit down, John. I don't know how you have survived. It's a, it's a mystery. It's a mystery. Jesus is like, I, maybe, I don't, I wasn't expecting him to make it this far. Yeah. You've messed up the whole plan of the world because he wasn't expecting you to get through up to this point. I can't wait till you guys have this baby. I cannot wait. This is going to be so good. Let's look at some of these pictures from our, from our kids. This one is, this is a stunning picture to me, this first one. And it says, it says, Jesus died to save us from sin. And it's somebody who's either walking to or walking through, having come through the cross. But what I love about this is the line, Jesus died to save us from, he died to save us from, he died to save us from, but yet so many of us walk around functionally like Jesus died to save us from the Father. We walk around like Jesus died to save us from God. He didn't. He died to save us from sin. You've heard me say this before, and I'll say it until the day I die. Jesus is not hanging on the cross to change the mind of the Father. Jesus is hanging on the cross to reveal the mind of the Father. Jesus is not trying to change God's mind because Jesus and God are one being. They're the same. When Jesus was born, his name was Emmanuel, God with us. And so when Jesus goes to the cross, Jesus isn't offering his blood to the Father. Jesus is bleeding the Father's blood. Jesus didn't die to save us from God. He died to save us from sin from darkness and from evil. But when we can, re we need a new wineskin to know that because we're used to thinking that God was like, I gotta kill somebody. And Jesus is like, kill me, kill me, so you don't kill them. I've heard somebody say, you know what atonement is like? Atonement is like, you know, one person has their kid in shop, right? And somebody else's kid is being really bad. So God smacks his kid to save this kid from getting spanked. Nothing could be more trash than anything I've ever heard in my entire life. Jesus is God coming to offer to us a sacrifice. He offered something to us. We'll talk about this in a second. He didn't save us from God. He saved us for God, from sin. Jesus didn't save us from God. He saved us for God, from sin.
I pray that we have wineskins that can handle that kind of love. Next picture. If you can't read it, the girl on, yes, the left is saying, Jesus said to love your enemies, and the other girl is saying, I've bullied you for three years. This kind of love that God has that we're about to quickly talk about in the prodigal son story, this kind of love should make us say, How are, why are you putting your coat on me? Why are you putting your rings on me? Why are you having a party for me? I have disobeyed you for such a long time. Why are you love? I can't figure out why you're loving me like this. He's like, because I'm giving you a new wineskin. Because you've always been lovable. You've always deserved heaven. And some kind of evil has clouded you into thinking you deserve hell. I'm here to show you you deserve heaven because that's how I made you. And what I spoke into existence can't be undone. Okay. I'm taking notes that this is not exciting to some people. Would it be more exciting if I said, if you don't get it right today and get hit by a mat truck and die, you'll go to hell and burn, so come to the altar, please, everybody who doesn't want to burn and pretend it's because you want to love Jesus? Next picture. Love others. And I, it's just to me, it's the circle. It's the circle that got me when I saw this picture. Love others as, not however you want, as God loves you. But how does God love you? He loves you by saving you from the evil that is acting on you. He doesn't love you by shoving your face in everything you've done wrong and telling you you have to repent from every, if you don't, if you don't name everything, I won't forgive it. Can I just tell you, this is just me, maybe you're smarter than me, but I often repent for not knowing what I need to repent of. The arrogance that exists in some of us to know where we need to repent may be our biggest sin of all. I don't even know my repenting needs forgiveness. I don't even know all the time. I'm sinful enough to not even know what I need to repent of. So sometimes I just say, Lord, forgive me for not even knowing. Help me see better where I can better my own life and therefore the lives of those around me. Love others as God loves you. How does he love you? He loves you in a way where when he tells you the love, you say, but I've bullied you for three years. But I've, I haven't walked with you, but, I, but you saw the way I raised those kids. I was angry. You saw what I did to that marriage, I ruined it. You saw what I did to our finances, I, I brought them to ruin. He's like, first come here. We'll talk about that later. Know that I love you. Know that I'm not counting that against you until I reconcile you, and then we can talk about what's not being held against you. But if he makes us talk about our trespasses first before there's reconciliation we will not be fruitful but when love permeates the atmosphere first we're in a safe place to talk about our vulnerabilities and finally this is an excellent picture 
I think Jacqueline would love this to be me. What is lacking on this person's face besides a nose? <laughs> you know why I love this picture? Because before anything stupid ever comes out of my mouth, I think about it a lot. I gas myself up. I have an argument with some of you in my head, and I kill it. I kill it in the argument. At the end of the arguments I have with you all in my head, you're like, I, 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 I love you, Pastor. You're the greatest pastor ever, and I need to be saved. And then I say something stupid. Because what happens in here is what comes out of here. And this person has no mouth because their mind has been transformed to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you did. So just a sidebar from the children, from the heart of a child, whenever you start to debate somebody in your mind, somebody in your life, me, whatever, me from this sermon apparently, which you're all going to leave with this inner monologue constantly arguing with me, and the minute you have like the second back and forth with somebody in your head, pause and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you did. And don't stop saying it to yourself until that argument ends. And then if you need to, talk to the person face-to-face. It will be so much more healthy than if you gas yourself up about right and wrong and talk to them not thankful for what God has done for you. So, to the prodigal son quickly. Prodigal, what does it mean? It means to leave home and to spend lavishly. To leave home and to spend lavishly. What do I love about this story? is Jesus tells this story in such a masterful way. The younger brother leaves home once in the story. The older brother leaves home once in the story. The father leaves home twice in the story. He runs out to meet the younger brother, and he runs out to meet the older brother. The younger brother leaves once in the story. The older brother leaves once. The father leaves home twice because the father is more reckless and prodigal than any of his sons. Because the love of God is a reckless love. It will leave home as many times as it needs to to get you back inside. And if you're the older brother and you won't come back inside, then he will be the house brought to you. The younger brother, and this is half of the people in the room, the younger brother is the person who wrestles with right and wrong in his own self. Not about others, about you. There are some of us who constantly live under our own tyranny over ourselves. I'm right, I'm wrong, I'm wrong, I'm right. And we're constantly living trying to make ourselves feel right about ourselves. And so we're home, and then we want to leave, and then we want to come back. It's the younger brother who's constantly changing his mind, trying to make rightness and wrongness happen for himself. And then the other half of us are the older brother who never changes his mind. He has one thought and sticks with it and thinks that if I change my mind at all, I'm faithless. And so he's stubborn as a mule, this kid. Doesn't change his mind. He's the one who's concerned about rightness and wrongness with other people. The younger brother is worried about, am I right, am I wrong? The older brother is worried about, are you right or are you wrong? And neither of them are fruitful. At any point in the story, they're not fruitful. The father, who lets go of right and wrong and violates 
all the Torah commandments. And keep in mind, Jesus is telling this story about what God is like. He gives the one brother his inheritance. So that means everything that's left belongs to the older brother. And so when the younger brother comes back and the father says, here's my coat, here's my ring, here's my calf, all of those things belong to the older brother. He's violating the Torah commandments because God will even violate his own commandments if it means bringing you home. He'll break his own rules if it means bringing you home. He will debase himself, make himself wrong in the eyes of everybody else, run out undignified to you if it means even the chance that he could bring you back into the house. He doesn't hold on to dignity. He doesn't hold on to pride. He doesn't hold on to rightness or wrongness. He is fighting for something much higher than any of those things. Your life is so much more important to him than any of those other things ever will be. Notice the tyranny these two brothers live under. The younger brother doesn't think he could ever be a son. I will come back and I'll be a slave. But the older brother also doesn't consider himself a son. Because he says, I have slaved for you out here my whole life. Do you see that? These words matter. Neither brother could see themselves as a son. They only see themselves as a servant at best. Because whether you think you're flat on the ground wrong or whether you think you are ivory tower right, you still can't imagine being God's child. But what does the father say? He says to the older brother, my son was lost and now he's found, was dead and now is alive again. What does he call him? So even when he was lost, he was still only born again people are children of God. When he was lost, he was still we need a new wineskin for this. It's easier to believe a sermon where I'm telling you how bad you are than it is to believe this. The father knows that the younger brother changes his mind a lot. And so this kid one day is like eating from a pig trough. And he says, I got to go back home. I got to get home. He might have went home for selfish reasons. I was eating good when I was at home. I'm eating bad now. I'm going to go back home. And on his way, he rehearses a story. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Just make me one of your hired servants. But the father knows, I know my younger brother, I know my younger son, and I know this boy changes his mind too much. And I have a feeling that when he sees the beginning of my house, he might say to himself, you know what, this is so embarrassing, I'm so wrong, I've made so many mistakes, I squandered uh, the, the money, they know about the prostitutes, I can't go back home. And the father says, you know what, before this joker changes his mind, I'm running, and I'm going to interrupt the mind change. 
I'm not going to let him change his mind. I'm going to meet him at the point where he's about to change his mind and say, you get your butt back in this house. Some of us are ashamed and we change our mind constantly. And God wants to meet you today right in the middle of that mind change and say, come back inside. I don't care if your mind changes. Mine hasn't. The older brother, he never changes his mind. So the father goes out to him. And Jesus ends the story with the father out to the older brother. And many have said, the younger brother's the saved one and the older brother's not. The younger brother is in the house. The older brother is in the presence of the father. And the story ends. It ends with the younger brother home and the older brother in the presence of the father. Man, if that's not salvation, I don't know what is. The father comes out and says, hey, microphone, you're not going to come in the house, are you? Okay. Tell them I'll be in whenever. I'm going to outlast you. I'm going to stay out here. I could stay out here longer. I'm, I've, I've been to the tomb and back. I can stay out here all day, all night, until next decade. But as long as you're out here, I'm going to be out here too. And he says, where's that psalm? Even if I make my bed in hell, you're with me. <laughs> I cannot get away from you. And I think the thing that amazes me the most is that when the younger brother comes home, the father offers him a sacrifice and doesn't ask him for one back. You're home? Go kill the fatted calf. I'm offering you a sacrifice for coming home. And the younger brother's like, I thought I was going to have to work. I thought I was going to have to like unveil all of my wrongs. I thought I was going to have to offer you something to take me back. And the father's like, no, no, I'm offering you something for, so that you can come home. Jesus on the cross is a sacrifice offered to us to say there's a party, you can come home. Let's stand to our feet this morning. You don't we don't, I don't fully comprehend how it all works knowing that this is the kind of love being offered unto us. It creates more questions than I've ever had in my entire life about doctrines and thoughts and verses and all this kind of stuff. But when we truly say to ourselves, especially as parents, even if my child rejected me and I had the ability to save them from harm, I would. I would. Even if it meant violating their own free will by pulling them off the train tracks, I'm standing on these train tracks. 
please get off of a train that's coming. I'm standing on these train tracks. Please, that huge, gigantic piece of metal beeping at you is going to run you over. I'm, get away from me. Don't talk to me. I want nothing to, come here. You'll violate their choice if it means keeping them safe. What parent would raise their hand and say, I wouldn't do that for my child? Ron, you know people from CPS. Look around to see. What parent, Ron, would say, if he tells me not to help him, I'm going to let him get hit by a train? What if there's a being who has the power to go all the way to stop it from happening? And what if his name is Jesus? And what if he really is saying, I will run to you, I will stay outside with you, I won't stop pursuing you, and I'll even knock you over if it means you being safe? Why wouldn't he? Because a verse says. We just got to sit down and wrestle with those verses. Because why wouldn't he? Is it unconditional or is it conditional to a very far away point? Raise your hand if you think God's love is not unconditional. We wouldn't be here. We wouldn't want to be. You wouldn't come just to listen to me talk. I mean, I'd like to think you would. I would come to hear me talk. Joel, I love your mustache so much, man. I can't even like, stop looking at it from over here. We're here because we know this is, this is the, if this is real, this is the hope against all hope. That at some point, whether it's me or somebody that I know that's not walking with him, he's going to intervene and he's going to make it work because his love is unconditional. So work it out with me. Let's spend the rest of our lives working this out. Let's figure this out. Let's figure this out because what is good news? Good news is that even if you've made your bed in hell, you turn around and say, why are you here? That's probably how Jacqueline feels about me and Sophia. She's like, all right, I think they're sleeping. I'm just going to sneak off into this. Why are you guys here? We heard you get up. <laughs> like, but that's how it is with him. When would he stop? I'm not pursuing you anymore. I tried. It's over. When would he stop? That's a, that's a condition. If you would change your mind, he'll run after you before you would. Somebody said to me once, and I know I'm going long, but I'm not preaching next week, so. He said, I hear what you're saying, Pastor, but what's the point, what's the point of living a holy life then? I said, there is no point in living a holy life. I don't live a holy life because of a point. I live a holy life because I've been changed. <laughs> it's not to get something. It's not to earn something. It's not for the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I've been changed. I know me. I've been changed. Anger didn't change me uncontrollable, reckless, God, you're spending your love recklessly, you need to be on a budget, kind of love changed me. If love was money, Stuart Walker would not be able to believe how God is spending it. He'd be like, you need to go on a budget. 
There's no ledger. It's all spent. And it keeps on being spent. And it will never stop being spent. Let's work this out together. Let's figure this out together, not in anger or debates. Let's figure this out. Because there's good news that we can give people. I said to my friend, here's what I know about you. I said, I know the church has hurt you. But I want you to know God hasn't. And one day, I know he's going to reveal that to you. Here or there, every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. To the glory of the Father. We always sing that song, I Will Run. He can sing it first. He sings it first. The younger brother didn't have a good idea to say, I'm going to go home. He, the, the love of the father, reached from the house to the pig pen and changed his heart. How could the love of the father go from where I left it all the way to here? It's the third member of our trinity. His name is the Holy Spirit. It travels all the way down our wrong road, all the way to our pigsty, and what does it say? All of a sudden, we come to ourselves. I got to go back home. And we go back home wanting lesser stuff. We're going back home wanting manna. Just make me one of the servants. And Jesus is like, it is better than you'll ever possibly imagine. You are a son, you were a son, and you will always be a son because I'm your father. Lord Jesus, on the night when we did all this, on the night when we betrayed you, on the night when we lavishly spent our inheritance recklessly, you sat comfortably in your chair, knowing what was at stake. And you offered us a new covenant, one that forgives this sort of thing. You said, this is my body which is broken for you. As often as you eat it, eat it in remembrance of me. And this is my blood spilled for you. As often as you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you sit down at a table, remember that you always have a seat at my table. I wrote this down earlier in the week, and I want to say this, and it's probably to very few people, but would everybody please close their eyes for a moment? If you're here and you hear a message like this, and you're in an abusive relationship, it would be very easy for you to hear, the sin doesn't matter, just last, outlast it, and the person will change. I want to tell you as sensitively as I possibly can, I don't want you to hear this that way. There are seasons where you have to remove yourself from somebody. And the fact that God doesn't remove himself from somebody is the hope that you have. It doesn't always have to be you to play Jesus in somebody's life if they're violating you. 
you can leave and make room for Jesus to enter their life and bring healing, but you don't have to bring that healing. He said, this is my body broken for you so that your body doesn't have to be broken for an abuser. I don't want to say more than that. I just want to make that point. That in no way, shape, or form is anybody saying, stay in a situation, whether it's physical abuse, verbal abuse, emotional abuse, mental abuse, or any other kind. If that is happening with you, and you need to separate yourself, you are not the Father. You are not Jesus. You might have to move yourself out of the situation as a way of God protecting you, and then the Holy Spirit can come in and do what you cannot do, and that you're not called to do, and no one should make you feel guilty not doing it. This is as deep as it gets, Salem. This is the deepest end of the pool. This is complicated. It's not easily answerable. It has nuances. It has its ups and downs. It has its shade and its sun. But I would rather swim in this end of the pool trying to figure out what unconditional love means than sit up on the beach someplace trying to say, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're I'm not about that. Would you have a sacramental imagination with me for the rest of this year and say, God, how does this work? How does this work? I want Jesus to be as good as it sounds like he's saying he is. Holy Spirit, I pray that you descend on this bread and make it for your people the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him. And I pray that you would descend on us also. Forgive us of our sins. And make us food for the world that we may go out from here and tell people the good news, not the good advice. The good news that they are as much a child of God as anybody else is. And they can come home. And if people are stuck not coming home, I pray that we, Father God, would stay out there with them long enough until their mind changes. In your name. Amen. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. You can come and receive, and over here you can come and receive. If you want an usher to give you an individual cup, they will. Come worship with us one more time and come and receive from the Lord. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle Podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.